0: You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. And welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, Fishermen, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, kids, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the Blue Ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listening area on the West Marine Coast are the Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, which together protect 4,581 square miles of rocky shorelines, sandy seafloors, rocky banks, and deep sea canyons and maritime artifacts. Fall is definitely here, and our at-sea monitoring collaboration with the two sanctuaries, along with Point Blue Conservation Science we're out at sea this past week completing its third monitoring effort of the year, documenting mammals and seabirds along with prey items like krill. There's some whales around still, as well as krill, large and small, as well as lots of seabirds around. This data is so important to keep a pulse on the marine life that are out in the marine sanctuaries, and it generates really important information for the management, which is so important for the long term conservation of these incredibly rich habitats and species that utilize or live in these National Marine Sanctuaries. So if you wanna catch up to highlights of photos and what's been happening most recently with the ACCESS program, you can keep an eye on it by visiting the ACCESS Oceans Facebook page, which is ACCESS Oceans on Facebook, as well as their website, accessoceans.org. I have uh, two guests calling in today and we're focusing on marine debris again. The International Coastal Cleanup Day just recently passed, where thousands of folks took to waterways and beaches to pick up debris and remove it from watersheds and shorelines. Thank you to all of you that participated in helping to collect and document litter on the coastline. One thing I've seen over time is the locations for cleanups have increased inland. And this is really good news as awareness increases that the majority of debris that ends up on the shores originates inland. Marine debris continues to be a growing global problem for ocean life, food webs, and humans with more and more science revealing the types, sources, and solutions. Just a few weeks ago, another massive effort launched out of San Francisco to attempt to remove large amounts of plastic from the accumulation zone in the Pacific known as the Great Pacific Garbage Patch between California and Hawaii. The project known as the Ocean Cleanup originated in 2013 when a 16-year-old boy named Boyan Slat was inspired to find a solution to cleaning trash out of the ocean. Over the last five years, planning and engineering and prototyping took place, and recently, the first effort left San Francisco Bay and headed out to the gyre region between California and Hawaii. The project claims it can clean up 50% of the concentrated debris in the gyre in five years. My guest today is going to help talk about this as well as a lot of the other solutions that are In the works with the research and science that's happening globally, I have with me on the air Dr. Denise Hardesty, the principal research and scientist team leader with Commonwealth Scientific Industrial Research Organization, Oceans and Atmosphere Division, also known as Cicero, and they are out of Australia. And then later on in the show, um, an environmental attorney, Lisa Cass Boyle, will be calling in to talk about the recent straw law that California passed. So we're talking all marine debris today. So, Dr. Denise Hardesty, I want to welcome you to Ocean Currents. You're live on the air. Thank you. It's great to be here. I wanted to hear what your thoughts are about the merits of this ocean cleanup.
1: I think one of the great things that the Ocean Cleanup Project has done is really to help increase the awareness of this issue. And I think that's a really important thing. I do think, however that you really couldn't get any further down the end of pipe in terms of looking at solutions or helping to resolve the issue. I mean, literally, you couldn't get further than saying, okay, we're going to go out into the garbage patches, which is where the trash is going to be oldest and smallest and most broken up and most diffuse or dispersed throughout the ocean than to go out into the middle of the ocean. If we really want to resolve this issue, I think we need to be doing things that, Are frankly, a lot less sexy. We need to be doing things closer to the source, stopping it from getting out there in the first place, putting rubbish traps or trash traps at river mouths and those sorts of things, rather than going out as far away as possible to try to clean it up, where it's going to have a lot more biological contamination. It's going to be a lot smaller. It's just a much bigger issue to try to clean it up out there. It's more expensive, and it has a lot. It really has the biggest carbon footprint you could possibly get.
0: One of the plans from the project was to bring the extracted plastic back to shore to recycle. And boy, I think we're having quite an issue with recycling in the United States these days. On top of that is the persistent organic pollutants that attach to these plastics. How does that go through a recycling process?
1: some of the chemicals that are on the surface of the plastics actually sorb into the ocean itself if you think about osmosis back to when you were in you know primary school and thinking about things reaching that equilibrium point so really what you're going to have happen is some of the chemicals that are sorbed onto the plastics in the production phase those are going to sorb you know or they're going to become at equilibrium with the seawater around them and at the same time some of the plastics will sorb different environmental contaminants onto the surface of them. So if they're in an area of heavy metal, you may see increased heavy metal concentration um, on the surface of those plastics. And then that needs to be cleaned off in the recycling process. The other thing, perhaps even a bigger issue, by the time the plastics get out there into the middle of the ocean, they're actually not new and they don't look like plastic drink bottles or you know, bleach containers or beach chair or a mattress protector, whatever it was, a toothbrush that's made its way out there, broken into little pieces. And so that also means that there may be hitchhikers, we call them. There may be biofilms. There may be invasive species that have attached onto the surface of these plastics. And all those things make it a bit trickier. It makes recycling them more expensive, more difficult. You say, hey, wait, recycling is also becoming a big issue in the United States. Has it really become a bigger issue? Or is it that China has closed the door and said, hey, we're not going to take all the stuff from the United States anymore, which is forcing us to have to deal with those issues a bit closer to home than how we had to do it before?
0: Lots to think about there. In terms of the amount that the ocean cleanup was attempting or s- claiming they would catch, Eben Schwartz from the California Coastal Commission shared with me the recent statistics of the recent California Coastal Cleanup, which is a one day event, just actually half a day. And this year, 60,200 volunteers across 55 counties out of 58, they cleaned up about 575 thousand pounds of trash in three hours. And that's about six times the amount of trash this project was hoping to clean up in the next six months. So that puts some perspective to me about how much they're attempting to to get out there. So I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens. I think that there'll be more attention on it, which is good. But I'm hoping that we can bring more efforts back to the sources of all this debris, because you can't treat... A problem unless you treat the symptoms first.
1: I absolutely agree. So the thing that Eben hasn't had going for him in quite the same way is the same sort of media house behind him, like generating awareness about the fantastic efforts that he was leading with his volunteers. The other important thing about stopping that trash from getting out there into the ocean is that in the ocean is where it's impacting the wildlife. And that's one of the things that many people here really care about. Like We don't want to have our sea lions with fishing nets tangled around them. We don't want to have our seabirds eating beverage container lids. We don't want to find plastic toys in the stomachs of animals. A way to stop that impact on the animals is to stop that plastic getting out there in the ocean in the first place, rather than waiting for it to have moved through the area where that wildlife diversity is, where that wildlife diversity happens, along our continental shelves off the coast of California, in our marine sanctuaries and beyond, you know, we want to actually stop the trash before it gets there rather than when it's out there in the middle of the ocean. So these incredible efforts that volunteers around the world put in to spending a few hours, to being a custodian of their local beach, all that stuff is really important and that's a great way to stop it from getting out there in the first place.
0: Yeah, and I should mention the numbers you gave me were actually just for California, even though that was the international coastal cleanup, five hundred and seventy five thousand just in California, which is
1: exactly amazing. In California alone, you know, and it, it shows you what public will can really do in terms of reducing the issue.
0: So I want to go to some of the other work that you have done. You were part of a study contracted by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, and the Ocean Conservancy to better understand the issue in the United States in terms of our source of marine debris, the problem that we have. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about what did you specifically look at for the United States in quantifying the problem and uh, what recommendations did you have?
1: So what we did was we actually, you know, as everybody wants to do, we got to drive down the west coast of the United States, so from Seattle down to San Diego, or myself and a colleague did, and we surveyed along the beaches, along the coastline, about every 100 kilometers, so about every 62 miles or so. So we actually went out and collected data and surveys. We actually worked with the NOAA teams and Ocean Conservancy as well and went out and did some surveys with them so that we could say, hey, what can we learn from the various types of surveys that we do. So from cleanup data, from NOAA's design surveys, and then from the types of um, quick and rapid assessments that we do at CSIRO. Some of the things that we found are that there's between 20 million and, and basically almost 2 billion pieces of trash likely along the coastline of the United States alone, just within the United States. So almost 2 billion pieces of plastic most likely. And we make that estimate based upon the data that NOAA have collected, our data, and then that kind of volunteer collected data that you were just speaking about from around the state here. The thing that we do that's a little bit different is we actually include a bit of other information. So we ask, you know, how many people live in this area? Because trash isn't trash isn't trash in the same way without considering how many people actually live within the area. We need to actually consider how populous an area is, what's the infrastructure that's available there, because that really affects how much trash ends up there. How accessible is it to people? Is it a remote beach? Is it a really common public beach where lots of people tend to go? Because we find that different survey methods estimate different kinds of things, and that gives us different information. And we really want to start to put things together to say, okay, what are the items that affect wildlife the most, What are the abundant items? What kind of trash do we find out there on our beaches along the west coast of the United States? And then what's the risk that some of those items actually poses to various wildlife species? So, for example, we know that we don't find a lot of balloons, and we know at the same time that balloons are very harmful to wildlife. We do find a lot of hard plastic fragments, and we know that hard plastic pieces are something that we find in the stomachs of lots of seabirds and turtles and other marine mammals. So we basically wanted to say, okay, how much do we find out there? What are some of the big ticket items that we find? And then what can we do to help reduce those issues? What are some of those recommendations that we can make here within the United States? And We say, okay, let's put together a national synoptic picture. Let's put together a survey that incorporates a few specific recommendations so that we can make sure that we're comparing apples with apples and oranges with oranges. Now, we also suggest, yeah, keep doing some of the cleanups because it can really tell us how effective different policies are. And so one of the things we were able to do with the data that had been collected for so many years was to say, okay, does cash for containers really work? And I don't think it's a huge surprise, but yes, incentives do work. We find fewer beverage containers in the states, within the United States, where people get five or ten cents back for their beverage containers. So those sorts of things are really effective.
0: What are some of the other recommendations for helping address those items, especially near urban centers?
1: So some of the other recommendations are to really consider the socioeconomics of a place, how many people live in that area, and really trying to understand what of that is driving the amount and types of trash that we find on our beaches we also encourage people to just record a few extra little bits of information when they do a cleanup like don't forget to record how many people are there and how big of an area did you survey because what we find is that in areas where you have more people doing surveys you find more trash does that mean that the area is dirtier not necessarily it may really mean that people start to have an association for what what you're aiming for. So the first person goes and finds six tires and it's like, oh, okay, wait a minute. I can't find six tires, but that's what success looks like. But I found 20 milk jugs and water bottles, so I bring those back. The next person's like, hmm, okay, I found six water bottles, um, but I found a whole bunch of polystyrene, so foam from coolers, so I bring that back. We think that the more people survey an area, the more there's kind of a, a social goal of trying to find as much as the next person, and that kind of good-natured competitiveness means that, yes, we clean up more stuff, but that in some ways it also biases our sampling or results, and so we want to encourage people to please record how big an area did you survey, how long did you spend there. How many people helped out of this? Those sorts of things really make a big difference for us being able to make comparisons for surveys carried out in different places.
0: Denise, the surveys that you're talking about, are they associated with the NOAA Marine Debris Monitoring and Assessment Project that is somewhat of a citizen science effort for monitoring the marine debris?
1: See, we actually analyze data from the NOAA Marine Debris Program. So and NOAA actually has two different types of survey methods. One is called an accumulation survey, and one is called a standing stock survey. And the difference between those two is that at one you go and you pick stuff up, and at the other one you actually record what's there, and you leave it there so that then you can see is stuff being replaced or, you know, is it accumulating there through time. And so, yes, some of the work that we did was actually in. in actually involved us helping to analyze that important NOAA marine debris program data that has been collected. At the same time, we were making some recommendations for how you might make that survey method a bit more consistent with some of the other methods that are out there. And one of the things that people can do is they can actually go to the NOAA marine debris website, and they can download an eight-page brochure that talks about the high points of the findings from the work, recommendations, the beverage container analysis that we did, it talks about what items are most threatening to wildlife.
0: Fantastic. That's Gov. It's a very well-organized website. Great information on there about research and education and things happening regionally regarding marine debris. Do you find that the concentrations of debris near urban centers is something consistent globally in terms of the causes and the amounts of debris found on shorelines.
1: It absolutely is, Jennifer. It's one of the things that we find. If you want to look for a hotspot, go to a city. If you want to find the hotspot spot within that city, go to a beach that has that's a soft, sandy beach that's concave, so the end of a little cove. And in those edges, around the edges of that cove is where you're going to find that debris. One of the other things that's really interesting that we find is everybody that you go to says, it's not us. It's not from us. So the trash in the United States, we have really good recycling. We don't <laughs> litter here in California. We're so good about it. That stuff is coming from everywhere else. It's coming from Mexico, from the South. It's coming from you know Oregon, Washington, although they, of course, take exception with that as well, from the North. But what we find with our analysis is actually most of it's really domestic in origin. Most of it's coming from us, and most of it's coming from local sources, which means that it's coming from... When there's a big rain and a flush, it's coming down. Stormwater drains It's coming from people littering. It's coming from along the highways and those sorts of areas as well. And we know from other work that we've done that we find more trash in places where people are transient. So we actually find more trash along the sides of highways. We find more trash in industrial areas. We find more trash...
0: Where there's more people,
1: basically. Where there's more people, absolutely. And And importantly, it's not just where there's more people... It's in places where people are transitioning, where they're transitory, where they're driving through, where they're doing their shopping, but it's not where they live. So we find that neighborhoods, parks, and beaches are actually cleaner than industrial areas, sides of highways, and areas kind of at the back and around shopping centers. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because I think that people move through those areas, the latter ones, but that they go to beaches, they go to parks. And they look after their own communities or backyards or neighborhoods because that's where they spend time. And those are places that they go for aesthetic value. They go to places that are nice, that are clean in general. And we also know that people will drive farther to go to clean beaches, right? Nobody wants to go to a beach that's full of trash, which means that there's economic costs to communities, to cities, to counties of having high trash loads on our beaches.
0: Right. Right. And I just wanted to ask, you were part of a study where we looked at the success of awareness campaigns versus government policies and legislation at reducing plastic waste into the marine environment. And is it an either-or?
1: Well, really, the smartest thing to do is to spend a bit of money on coastal waste management and have awareness-raising activities and campaigns a mix. in your community. We are, so it's not one or the other it's both together, and you don't have to spend a ton of money on the legislation or on the activity side. You need to have a really nice balance where you are implementing some policies and you are engaging with your local community to raise that local awareness of the issue.
0: Excellent. So a little bit of both. And the more that we are all engaged in, in cleanups like the California Coastal Cleanup and hearing about local legislation either from the cities, towns, or even our state. It helps. It's kind of a a magnifying effect by working together. Absolutely. Are there any other projects you really want to share about how this movement for learning about marine debris and reducing it locally and globally about what's happening?
1: We're actually engaged in a large scale global project right now where we're going out and surveying and trying to put some hard numbers behind how much waste really is being mismanaged and making it out there into the marine environment. So we're working in Korea and the Philippines and Bangladesh and China and South Africa and Peru, in the United States and other places that are listed as some of those having the most significant waste mismanagement that makes its way out there into the ocean. And it's a really exciting project in part because we're getting to go and work in these countries and to help train people that have already been doing really good work in these countries to collect the data. And then we're going to be able to be building these networks of people across Southeast Asia and Africa and North America and South America to really be building this global community or network of people that are collecting data in the same way. So it's amplifying what we're doing in the various countries. And then we can actually compare and learn what works well in different contexts. Because it's important to think about the cultural components, the, the waste management infrastructure of the various places that you're working. It's quite a privilege that we have here in the United States where we have clean drinking water out of our taps, at least in most places. And not everywhere in the world has that. So we need to consider things in context and with what we know about the various places. And it's a really exciting project.
0: That's fantastic. seems that is one of the biggest issues we have with all ocean conservation projects, is that international collaboration? How do we come together? And what you're describing sounds extremely helpful to bringing everybody to the same page to move forward together. How did that come to be?
1: Well, we had been doing some work with Jenna Jambeck and others around this. There was a paper that came out that talked about 6 to 12 million metric tons of plastic are going out into the ocean each year. And that was based upon some older data and was really a desktop study. And we're like, okay. So we think that is a ish, right? It is about correct, we hope, you know, we think. Let's actually go out there and test that. Some of the countries that are listed on in this basically like top 20, quote unquote, naughty polluters list, which the United States is on, we're like, hey, wait a minute. I don't think these numbers are right. And it's like, well, let's go figure it out. Let's get out there. Let's work together to find out the answers to these questions. And then we are better able to understand not only what is our baseline level of trash going out there, the other important thing about that is then we're actually able to say, okay, as these policies are put into place, as there's change in behavior in these areas, how quickly can we see that change reflected in the amounts and types of trash that we find not only on our coastline, but along our rivers and in the inland or upland areas away from the beaches as well, because all that stuff ultimately can flow down into the sea. So we were approached by some philanthropic groups that said, hey, we want to work on this. We think this is a really important issue, and it's quite, as you pointed out, Jennifer, it's a transboundary issue. It doesn't follow nation-states. It doesn't follow political boundaries. It's really a problem that needs to be addressed locally, but to address this global problem of plastic pollution. And so we had that opportunity, and we've been working with these various NGOs, non-government, volunteer groups, university groups now in countries around the world, which is just a fabulous outcome.
0: And Denise, one last question for you. What about preventing the production of these single-use plastics?
1: So there's a lot of work being done in that space around really reducing, in particular, single-use plastics. And one of the things is to actually look at having a levy or a fee associated with plastics such that we're incorporating the true cost and the true value of the plastics that we use into the economics of the plastics. And so that would start quite high up the chain at the manufacturing level so that as we are making and using products that we're actually thinking about, what's the cost? So what's the cost of recycling? What's the true cost of recycling? What? How much does it cost to turn that virgin or that single-use material into something else? And are we going to turn it into something that's upcycled? Is it going to become... Something that's downcycled, is it going to become a park bench? Is it going to become plastic decking board? What are some of the challenges around some of that stuff? We're really trying to work with industry, not just me personally, but there are many groups out there, and really looking at what are the end-of-life solutions and, as or more importantly, what are the opportunities and approaches that we're going to take to reduce the reliance on so much single-use plastic? not just in the United States, but in other countries. Although in the United States, we use a lot more plastic on a per-person basis than is used in many other countries because we're such a wealthy country.
0: Well said. Thank you so much. I'm going to be continuing to follow your work to learn more about that as time goes by. It's great to hear there's so much collaboration happening. Thank you, Denise. Is there a website that you might want to refer people to for your organization? Sure.
1: Sure. CSIRO.AU slash research slash marine debris. Or if you just Google CSIRO Hardesty Marine Debris or just CSIRO Marine Debris, lots will come up. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's great to talk with you and your listeners today. Thank
0: thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your time here. Bye-bye. All right. That was Dr. Denise Hardesty of Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, Cicero, out of Australia, talking about the efforts that they are engaged in with addressing marine debris on this global scale. We talked earlier a bit about the ocean cleanup that's happening and some of the challenges with that, of it being effective. But we will be... Waiting to see how that goes and how that might bring more attention to going further upstream to stop the inflow of plastic into the ocean. We're going to take a quick break. And when I come back, I'm going to have Lisa Cass Boyle come on, who has was really behind the recent straw law that was passed in California. So please stay tuned for that. We'll be right back with Lisa. We're back. You're listening to Ocean Currents here on KWMR, and we're talking about marine debris, a problem that just won't go away. And earlier, we were talking about some of the broad scale solutions and research that are happening. And I am excited to bring on Lisa Cass Boyle, who is the author behind the recent straw law in California. California became the first state to adopt plastic straw regulations. So, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. You're live on the air. Oh, thank you so much, Jennifer. It's wonderful to talk to you again. Yes, you were on a couple years ago. We were talking about microbeads, and you were also behind that legislation and banning the bead. Yes. So you're an environmental attorney, you've been a former prosecutor, and you also now direct weTap.org, which I'd love to talk about this at some point during our time here about focusing on public access to
2: safe tap water for drinking. So yes, that's another way that I am tackling plastic pollution. Having a easily accessible public source of drinking water is the only sustainable way to stay hydrated we all know that plastic water bottles are at the top of the polluting items of single-use plastic that we have with WeTap, we're trying to get the public back into refilling reusable bottles at hydration stations in the public venue and We're working with the water agencies, with the city of Los Angeles to make sure that these hydration stations are in schools, in public transport hubs, in parks, in all public menus, so that if people do need water on the go, that they have a clean, non-polluting, readily accessible way to get water.
0: Fantastic. That is so important. And I'm going to check that out a bit more. I'm one of those water bottle carriers. And sometimes I wonder, oh, will I be able to refill? Which bottle should I bring?
2: (laughs) Yes, And one of the great things uh, about WeTap is we have a free app, the WeTap app that you can get on your smartphone and be able to find a fountain wherever you go and to add to geotag new fountains when you find one.
0: Wonderful. So tell us a bit about the straw law. This just recently passed. The governor signed it. And you, I believe, are the author of the legislation. Tell us how it came to be. Yes,
2: it's so exciting. Just like working with five gyres, I knew about how plastic microbeads were a major source of ocean plastic pollution and entering our food chain. I knew from my extensive work in plastic that straws are up consistently in the top 10, usually around five, six, or seven, of the items most commonly found on the beach during International Coastal Cleanup Day. And so I like to look to things that can be reduced or eliminated that we really don't need, where there are obvious alternatives that are more sustainable. And with straws, the majority of adults don't need a straw. My husband and I go out for margaritas a lot, and we always ask for salt on the rim and no straw. And half the time, the straw comes anyway, which is kind of a crazy thing because you want salt on your rim. You don't want a straw with your salt on the rim. So I started to think, you know, this is just habitual behavior on the part of the restaurant and the servers, that these straws come whether you want them or not. So because we have a water-upon-request law in California, I started thinking about that, that to conserve water, we've made it so that water doesn't automatically appear on your table. And so to me, it made sense to have a similar restriction with straws, that you can have it, but you just have to ask for it, which, you know, isn't really an imposition on anyone, and it will hopefully significantly reduce plastic straw use, and in addition, the whole educational campaign with this law has been amazing. I split my time between Nashville, my hometown, and Pacific Palisades, California, for the past 30 years, a small coastal community, and Nashville, a landlocked, much larger community, And when I heard that Governor Brown signed the straw law that I proposed, I was so excited. I was sitting at a taco restaurant (laughs) in Nashville and I I was so excited. And I said, could I have a margarita? No straw. And the waiter said, we're no straws here, no plastic straws. We're for the turtles too. And here I'm sitting in Nashville, Tennessee, so far from the ocean. It was so wonderful. And then the restaurant owner tells me, oh, and by the way, we're getting paper straws printed up with our logo. It's just taking a while because they're in such demand.
0: That's amazing. Do you think a lot of awareness about the straws, the plastic straws, have originated around that video that was circulating with the turtle That was amazing to me, the connection there between that video and what has happened since then, as well as that great movie, Straws, that was produced, actually, right here in California. It just seems like this video and the media is what drew people to this issue.
2: I totally agree. Uh, A picture's worth a, a million words. And I also have to give credit to Chris Jordan with his work with the Albatross and his film Albatross. Seeing albatross birds regurgitating plastic pollution into the mouths of their young, they're trying to feed them fish, and they're feeding them plastic from the gyre, is just such a shocking and profound image. And in many ways, we are just like those albatross. We don't realize it because we're not eating the the plastic fragments directly but our use of plastic has put this plastic these microplastics into our food chain and we're consuming them just like the the birds and the fish so yeah i agree with you that those those images are just so powerful
0: Well, it is nice to see there seems to be a wave of change happening, especially with so many alternative solutions that people that need a straw can still have a straw, especially they can have a straw that's not going to be destructive later on. So it is nice to see this happening. Is there any pushback from industry for legislation like this?
2: Usually there is. We didn't face much pushback with microbeads or with the straw law from industry. Surprisingly, I think because there's really no defense for arguing against these laws because they're so reasonable. In the case of microbeads, these beads go directly into our water. They can't be eliminated, so sewage treatment can't keep them out of the oceans. There really wasn't any good argument for keeping them. Any step reducing plastic pollution will save some wildlife, and it's a step in the right direction to keeping plastic pollution out of our food chain, but the main players in plastics, like the American Chemistry Council, they even endorsed straws upon request as a reasonable measure. Because I think when it comes right down to it, even the plastics industry realizes where public opinion is going and we can all agree that plastics are good and important for some uses like bike helmets, artificial limbs, cars, but when you are talking about single-use items that are used for seconds and then last forever and are not recycled, they're just a one-way trip to the waste dump or into our environment. It's really kind of specious to argue that they're necessary when there are alternatives.
0: This is just California that this passed. Do you have thoughts about going national
2: with this type of legislation proposal? Great yeah. question. I think about that all the time. I look to create regulations that can help our more sustainable industries to plant single-use plastics that are, are so destructive, we can see that from the last International Coastal Cleanup Day, for the first time, the top 10 items were all single-use plastics. Glass got displaced by foam food, food packaging. So I think it is really important to go down the list of the top polluting single-use plastics and figure out sensible regulations, whether it's a reversal of the presumption of how they're provided or, in some cases, a ban of things that truly are not needed, and I'm working on that, coming up with good legislative solutions, and I have a bunch of ideas.
0: Fantastic. Well, Lisa, I want to thank you for your hard work. Can you share the name of your app again about finding tap sources of water that people can refill their stations? And also, is there a website where people can follow your work more or through social media?
2: Absolutely. I would love for our listeners to uh, check out org And the wetap app is W E T A P is available on your uh, phone. And if you want to read about my work and my articles about plastics, it's on my personal web- website as an attorney, which is www.lisa, K as in king, apple, apple, sun, cause, Boyle, B O Y L E
0: dot com. Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming on again to Ocean Currents, and congratulations on this recent law change. I'm really excited to yes. be monitoring
2: this on, on as a Californian. Thank you so much. I can't wait to talk next year about the next law we get passed. Fantastic.
0: Okay. All right. Have a great week. Bye. We were just talking with Lisa Boyle, who's the author behind the legislation in California to have straws on request only in California, plastic straws. They're ubiquitous. We've seen them everywhere. I guarantee you walk out in the street, you will see a plastic straw somewhere or a plastic bottle cap. And people like Lisa and also like Denise are working hard to figure out how to change this. And we're involved in that too. So check out a few of these websites, marinedebris.noaa.gov, a fantastic NOAA website about how the U.S. is tackling marine debris Cicero is C-S-I-R-O dot A-U. That is Dr. Denise Hardesty's organization. And Lisa Cass Boyle, Lisa K-A-A-S Boyle, B-O-Y-L-E dot com. And check out wetap.org, learning all about how to find uh, areas where you can refill your water bottle with healthy tap water. We're really lucky in the United States. Actually, this, I think, is an international resource where you can find healthy tap water elsewhere. I want to share also that my family got to witness the Hiki Hikianalia, the Polynesian voyaging canoe, arrive to California. Actually, we didn't see it arrive in California. We got to see it come into San Francisco. It came to Half Moon Bay all the way across from Hawaii, 2,800 miles from the shores of Hawaii across the North Pacific to the state of California, carrying a message of Malama Hanua, caring for our island Earth. And the Hiki Analia is now sailing down the coast of California, stopping in all the major ports. Uh, they just landed in Monterey yesterday, and you can go visit them and have a dockside tour and learn all about the work that they're doing using traditional navigation practices and communicating about the vital need to help protect the ocean. So check them out. Their website is hokulea.com. That's H O K U L E A.com. Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month at the new time, 11 o'clock to 12. And did you know that today is International Podcast Day? Who knew there was such a thing? But I'm thrilled to share that this radio show, Ocean Currents, which is also a podcast, was selected as 12 of the best ocean podcasts by Azula.com. I love hearing from listeners. So if you have topics, questions, uh, comments, please email me, cordellbank at noah.gov. That's C-O-R-D-E-L-L-B-A-N-K at NOAA.gov. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the ocean bay, or whatever body of water you can get into safely. This has been Ocean Currents here on Community Radio for West Marin KWMR. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Thanks to bensound.com for royalty-free music for the Ocean Currents podcast. For more info, visit www.bensound.com.